you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, we'll start reading in verse 22. The title for this sermon is Walking with Jesus Through Troubled Waters. Walking with Jesus Through Troubled Waters. Um, This really is part two of the excellent sermon Jace preached last week, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, which Jace taught us is tied to today's text about Jesus' miracle of walking on the water. It's kind of one thing, really. The first century Christian would have entered into emotion, into the emotion and power of the happenings in Matthew 14, probably much more easily, much more viscerally than we than we can. Uh, they would have been keenly aware of the reality of subsistence living for many who literally survived by what they made day to day. They didn't work one day, they didn't eat. And so the miracle of feeding the 5,000 would have rocked them to the core. It would have been astounding. Those who lived near the Sea of Galilee would have held its storm-tossed depths in fearful wonder. Uh, the idea that a man would walk across those troubled seas would have been ridiculous. To have heard that would have been astounding. And, and maybe it doesn't affect us that way, emotionally. Uh, we need help from the Holy Spirit to enter into the context of these happenings and receive the revelation of Jesus intended. That is our trust. That's what we prayed for. That's what Mary prayed for. So if you're at Matthew 14, verse 22, we'll read down through verse 33. This is God's holy and authoritative and sufficient word. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain to pray by himself. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat, by this time, was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you little doubt, little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word endures forever. I think this text, perhaps the main idea of this text, is Jesus' revelation of himself 
as Messiah and the Lord of creation enables his disciples to persevere and triumph through life's storms. I think this is teaching us the revelation of Jesus as Messiah and Lord enables his disciples to persevere and triumph through life's storms. Three main points. An unwanted command two, an unexpected appearance, and three, an unmistakable revelation. An unwanted command. Amazingly, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus' walk across the Sea of Galilee happened in a 24-hour period. It was a day in the life. It was this amazingly significant day where these events happened. Last Sunday, Jay skillfully helped us enter into the reality of the disciples whose minds were totally blown over the feeding of the 5,000. Jay just very helpfully gave the analogy of the momentarily disorienting experience of uh, seeing someone you know you know, but you can't quite connect a name to the face or or perhaps a context. I experience this every Sunday. (laughs) I live in horror of the possibility, nay, the probability, that one of you will walk up to me and I will blank on your name. Or maybe I I do really know your name, but I'm not sure I know your name. Which would be horrible. If I did that, it would make you feel like I don't love you enough to even... Bother to remember your name. But but that's not true. Oh, yes, you are in danger of experiencing that. And not just if you're new. You may have been here 20 years. I may have held you in my arms as a baby. I may have spent hours in prayer over you. But, you know, I'm old. <laughs> So I, the weird thing, I can remember the, the lyrics to songs I sang when I was a teenager. But I find myself in the kitchen going, why did I come in here? I can't remember. I know well the phenomenon that Jace described. But in addition to, to that disorientation, that cognitive dissonance, the disciples... I think, or experiencing an even more disorienting, eerie sensation. You may have experienced this one as well. You, you're sure you recognize someone in a crowd. Maybe you're out someplace in an event and you, you see someone or in a restaurant and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, there's so-and-so. And, and you make your way over to greet them, but at some point they look at you in the face and you realize, oh, wait a minute. I don't know that person at all. They're entirely other than you expected. The disciples thought they knew Jesus, but they were grappling with the growing feeling they don't know who he is at all. That must have been the effect of the feeding of the 5,000. Mark tells us of this day in the life of Christ in his gospel, and he says, they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. 
There was this massive disconnect in their blown brains. In fairness, the Lord did not give them any time to process what was going on. And he had not finished blowing their minds. As Jace told us last week, the start of the day, the 12 disciples thought they were going to go off for some rest and relaxation, a little retreat to pray up in the mountains, up in the hills. But suddenly this massive crowd shows up looking for Jesus. Jesus had compassion on the multitude. And he taught them and he healed them all morning long until maybe three in the afternoon or so. And then they're hungry. And he teaches the disciples a lesson and he says, what do you have? And he feeds the, he feeds them with those five loaves and two fishes. The disciples then spend the next three hours or so passing out food to some 15,000 plus people. And so now they find themselves around six o'clock in the evening, the 12 of them standing by the waters, holding 12 baskets of food with a dazed look on their face. They're probably thinking, okay, good, we have food. Now we're going to go up and pray and do what we started out to do, go to some remote place and relax, and that's all going to be all good. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. The disciples get what was likely an unwanted command. Matthew tells us Jesus, quote, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. This word made in the original language is, is strong, and it could have been, and it has actually it is translated in other places as compelled or forced. Jesus compelled them. He made them get in that boat and go. We are told uh, what was going on in the hearts and the minds of the disciples, like we are in other situations, but given their track record, and knowing our own hearts, it's hard to imagine they did not want to go across the lake at that point. They were tired, and as the sun was going down, the wind out of the west was freshening. These were experienced fishermen, which means they knew how hard it could be if the wind picked up to cross over to the other side. The Sea of Galilee is some 680 feet below sea level, so it becomes quite warm during certain, during certain times of the year. And then cold air rushing down from the sharply rising hills meets the warm air rising from the water. The result is often sudden and violent storms that can produce waves as high as 10 feet tall. So they knew this was a possibility. We can imagine Peter's response. Matthew relayed in chapter 16 how Peter was not beyond actually rebuking the Lord Jesus. Like he did in chapter 16. Did Peter object? Did he say, no, Lord, like he will in a couple of chapters? Which, by the way, are two words that shouldn't be uttered at the same time. No, Lord. No, Lord? Not no sir, no ma'am, no thank you to your waiter, but not no Lord. If it's Lord, it's, it's always yes, Lord, right? It's always yes, Lord. It's never no Lord. It's always yes, Lord. Supposed to be. You can feel our own blood boil when our children, or we remember of our children, saying to us, no, Daddy, or I don't want to, Mommy. 
<laughs> you are. How does God feel when you say, no, Lord? Overcoming all objections, Jesus compels them to get into the boat and to start rowing. Twelve hours later, these men were rowing against that for twelve hours and only made it about halfway. They were about three or four miles out. Matthew tells us the boat was, quote, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. That word beaten is elsewhere translated as tormented or tortured. Apostle John uses this word in Revelation chapter 14 to describe a scene from the Lamb's judgment of the righteous saying, and he will be tormented, beaten, tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. What the disciples were experiencing is exhausting, tortuous, tormenting, and hellish. And Jesus had sent them there. They were there by the will of God. That's clear. Were they arguing among themselves, as they often did? Were they complaining? Were they doubting? Had they stopped believing? What was going on in their hearts? What unwanted command are you dealing with in your life right now? What sudden storm has appeared on your sea as you have gone about obeying Jesus? Or do you find yourself rowing against the wind? Are you being tormented by the difficulties you are facing? How do you respond to the winds of adversity in your life? All of us today are somewhere on the spectrum of sin and suffering. How do you respond when you're sinned against? What do you do when your plans are foiled? How do you respond when you're locked into years of unfulfilled desire? How do you respond when physical pain, sickness, and disease bear down upon you? Are you bitter? Do you complain? Do you doubt God's goodness? Do you say, no, Lord, this is the wrong way? If you do, you're not alone. The theologian and reformer John Calvin wrote very helpfully about how to suffer for the glory of God. Now, Calvin didn't write from just some abstract theoretical theology. Calvin was no stranger to suffering. He was persecuted. He was rejected. He was defamed. He was slandered. And he also had many physical ailments. We're told physically Calvin suffered from excruciating kidney stones and headaches with buzzing in his ears and ear infections and incapacitating constipation and hemorrhoids. Calvin wrote of the suffering saying, I I nearly gave up the ghost. 
and now bathed in blood, can find no peace. What took four days to heal immediately, tears open again. Calvin wrote of this suffering to his friend, Melanchthon, saying, quote, For more than a week I have been thrown back and forth in death and hell. My whole body feels beaten. My limbs are still trembling. I almost lost Christ completely. Driven on the waves and storms of despair and blasphemy against God. But because the intercession of the faithful, God began to take mercy on me or my soul from the depths of hell. Unquote. Certainly the prayer of the faithful were a means of grace to Calvin and to us. Friday we fasted, in the evening we prayed, and we tarried long, praying for Lisa Seeger and the Seeger family. There's a means of grace. Your suffering should pray. But Calvin also had a bedrock assurance of the goodness and of a sovereign God. And here's how he described it in his institutes. I believe we have it for you on the overhead. Kind of a long quote. What greater misery could we imagine than to be always so fearful and distressed? To say that God had abandoned man, the noblest of his creatures, to the whim of fate, would be derogatory to him. My intention here is only to speak of how miserable man would be if his life were ruled by chance. On the contrary, if the light of God's providence shines in the believer's heart, not only will he be free of the fear and anguish which afflicted him before, he'll also be relieved of every doubt. For as we have a justified fear of fate, so we are rightly boldly to entrust ourselves to God. We are thus wonderfully comforted to know the Lord so holds all things in His power, rules by His will, controls by His wisdom, that nothing occurs except as He has ordained it. And moreover, that He has taken us under His protection has given his angels charge over us. So neither flood, nor fire, nor sword, nor anything else can hurt us unless his will determines it otherwise. What kept the disciples rowing in the midst of that hellish wind? Whatever their complaints or doubts, they knew two things. Jesus had said, cross over to the other side. And Jesus is good. So they rode. Because of their faithful obedience, they were about to see a Jesus they never expected. Point number two, an unexpected appearance. So back to the text. If you have your Bible open, look in, in Matthew fourteen twenty-five, and let's just read that or refresh it, refresh our mind, get the context. And in the fourth watch of the night, now the fourth watch was between 3 and 6 a.m. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But the disciples saw him walking on the sea, 
When they saw that, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Again, we see the mistaken identity. Who is this? The disciples thought they knew, but they didn't see him. Didn't see yet who he was. Verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, You little faith, why did you doubt? How could Peter dare to walk on the water? At this point, perhaps the east was beginning to lighten with the coming of dawn, but it was still night. The wind was furious. Perhaps Peter had a flash of revelation when Jesus said, It is I... That was an echo of God revealing himself to Moses in Exodus by saying, I am. Tell them, I am. Jesus said, it is I. Perhaps he heard an echo of that. Or even, perhaps Jesus, of Jesus revealing himself as the Messiah. Perhaps he, he heard something. Something clicked in his brain at that point. One version of the New Testament translates this exchange this way. The New Testament translate says it this way, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, I am the one, I am the Messiah. Do not be afraid. But having responded to him, Peter said, Master, if you are the one, order me to come to you across the waters. Certainly Jesus was revealing himself. Whatever the source, Peter stepped out of faith. The original language says Peter went down from the boat. Peter stepped down into that watery blackness. However, as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he actually walked on the water. Then Peter looked at the wind-tossed waves, and he feared, and he began to sink. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, You little faith. Why did you doubt? When you read that, when you've read that over the years, when you read it now, we don't have, we don't know exactly how Jesus said that, but how does your mind inform that? Oh, you little faith, why do you doubt? Perhaps you hear the tone your father and mother used when they corrected you. What were you thinking? Or perhaps you hear the tone you use or used to use with your children. Why did you make this mess? Why didn't you do what I told you to do? Why are you wasting all this time? When we say them, those are rhetorical questions. We aren't really looking for an answer. We just want to tell you we're disappointed in you. That's what we're saying. Oh, yes. This was an unexpected appearance, not only because the disciples could not conceive that Jesus would walk on water. No, they didn't understand, and perhaps we don't understand yet, that the signs and wonders Jesus demonstrated on that long, eventful day were actually a reenactment and a redemption of God's deliverance of Israel from bondage and into the promised land that we read about in the book of Exodus. 
God provided the means to deliverance and peace, but Israel failed. And ultimately, Moses failed to obey and believe and enter in. But now, unexpectedly, appears a new and better Moses who will not fail, who will redeem his people, who will lead him into the promised land by shedding his own precious blood to redeem them. Jesus is purposely reliving those accounts where Israel failed and he's doing them what we like to call the right way. Let's think about it together. Let me show you the comparison here of these hours of the day of of the life of Christ with what we learn about God's deliverance in the book of Exodus. In Exodus, God had compassion on Israel and taught them the law of Moses. Matthew, Jesus had compassion on the crowds and taught them the law of Christ. Exodus, God promised help and healing through the law of Moses. Here we see Jesus healing sickness and disease with his word. We see in Exodus, God providing manna from heaven, miraculously feeding Israel. Here we see Jesus multiplying the bread and the fish and feeding them supernaturally. In Exodus, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove back, drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made this sea dry land and we're divided. Here, the disciples struggle against the wind all night as well until Jesus appeared. And Mark records, and when he got into the boat, the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand the low, but the lows for their hearts were hardened. And lastly, in Exodus, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, but here, the disciples' hearts were hardened. And Jesus is redeeming it all. One of the fascinating things in Mark's account of this walking on the water, he records a surprising detail that is significant. Let me show it to you. Let me read this passage. We're going to think about this together. Let me read it to you here from Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 48. Essentially the same, but a little bit different. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking in the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking in the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and he and cried out. So, for, for they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Verse 48. He meant to pass by them. God, God, why would Jesus mean to pass by them? Did he intend to pass by them only to change his mind when he saw how distressed they were? It's like, oh, wait a minute, y'all are upset? Oh, let me come over and help you out. Is that what happened? No, no. In this unexpected appearance, it, it was crafted down to the smallest detail. And Mark provides an echo for the book of Exodus to show 
who it really was that appeared on that dark and stormy sea and how he felt about those disciples. Exodus 33:18, Moses cries out to God. Moses said, please show me your glory. And again, we need the context to get what this, how significant this is. What happens next has been called in Exodus, one of the, one of the major divine epiphanies of the Old Testament. Imagine the extreme emotion of this moment. Moses had just come down from 40 days with God on the mountain where he received the Ten Commandments, only to find the people of Israel worshiping the golden calf. 3,000 people died by the sword of of the Levites, and God had sent a plague among the people. What did what did Moses expect when he cried out on the heels of that tragedy? Show me your glory. What did he expect God to do? Thunder and lightning? Some terrible vision? Whatever he expected, that's not what he got. Let's read a bit more of that same passage, starting in verse 17. Or 18. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And will show mercy to on whom I will show mercy. I will make all my goodness pass before you. When the God of all creation, the lawgiver and judge, is asked to show his glory, he makes, he makes his goodness and his graciousness and his mercy pass before Moses. We go on to read in chapter 14 what actually happened. Let me re- let's read that together. Uh, starting in verse, a um, little later in the passage. The Lord passed before him. And proclaim, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Let that sink in. What was God revealing about himself? Even in the midst of all that sin and failure, The Lord, the Lord, is a merciful and gracious God. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. (laughs) Let that sink in. And he says, keeping his love to thousands means actually to thousands of generations. In other words, his steadfast love is never ending. And just to clarify, God isn't saying to those who belong to him, oh, and oh, by the way, it's not all good. I'm also going to visit the sins of your grandparents to you as well. Is that saying that to them? Yes, we do learn to sin, particularly ways from our family. We may inherit genetic deficiencies from our forebears. But we do not inherit our parents' sins and curses. Exodus 20 clarifies this. There it says, I, the Lord, visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. 
So in those earlier passages, I had it underlined, so you wouldn't miss it. What was God doing when He revealed His glory to Moses? He was passing by. I will pass by. Jesus was passing by the twelve disciples in the boat on that storm-tossed sea to reveal that He was the same God who made His glory pass by Moses on that sea of sand at the foot of Mount Sinai. The same God. The same God. Same God who passed by, who passes by you to show you His glory. And Jesus Himself would provide the means to forgive our iniquity and sin when He died on the cross. So, let's go back to our fearful, unbelieving Peter, knee-deep in water with Jesus holding him up. Matthew's account says he saw the wind, he was afraid, began to sing, cries out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying, oh, you little faith, why did you doubt? Let's go back to our earlier speculation. We were thinking about this, right? What was the tone Jesus used when he called out Peter's failure of faith? What was his tone? How does God speak to you about your sin? The commentators in this passage help us see that Jesus wasn't using the condemning rhetorical approach we use in experience. Jesus questioned the original language could be better could be better translated for what purpose did you doubt? For what purpose did you doubt? Jesus knew that Peter was afraid of the wind and waves. He was mercifully helping Peter look into his heart and grow in faith. In fact, Jesus put Peter and their other disciples through that hellish trial specifically to reveal his goodness, graciousness, and mercy to them in this unexpected appearance. And that is what God does, and that is how God addresses you in your failings and sin and suffering. And that is his goal for you in your suffering to appear to you when you least expect it with his goodness, graciousness, and mercy all purchased for you on the cross. So, how are you doing on your storm-tossed sea of suffering and sin? Is there a continual smoke of complaining around you, stinging your eyes in the eyes of those that have to hear you? Are you fearful? Are you doubting? Are you believing? Are you angry? If so, if you are, you need to confess that to your Savior. By His grace, repent. Christ will come to you and lift you up, give you grace to persevere. Yes, we serve a sovereign God. By His will, you are on those troubled waters. Praise God, you are not cut adrift on a sea of chance and human choosing. But not only do you serve a sovereign God, you serve a suffering God. Jesus, fully God and fully man, took your suffering and sin on Himself when He suffered on the cross in your place to redeem your suffering. But perhaps you're like the disciples in our passage. Up to now, your heart has been hardened. You do not yet truly know who Jesus is. So 
you have not received his forgiveness. If that's you, I hope that you have the same unmistakable revelation of Christ that the disciples had that you can have. So point number three, an unmistakable revelation. So, as Jace was teaching us, there was a dawning awareness uh, in the disciples. This is not the first trouble seas to be calmed by Jesus, Matthew 8. Let me refresh you. Let's read this briefly together. Matthew 8, verse 23 says this, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And then they, they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, For what reason are you afraid? Why are you afraid, O oh, you little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? And even winds and sea obey him. So here in chapter 8, the disciples simply marvel. And they say, okay, God, this is a boy. This dude's got it. What, what sort of man is this? They just wonder. Their hearts were hardened. But finally, in this day, chapter 14, when Jesus miraculously fed the 5,000, perhaps they begin to perceive that Jesus is the bread of life. Whoever comes to him will never hunger. Whoever believes in him will never thirst, as John taught us. When they made his glory, when Jesus made his glory pass before them as he walked to the water, well, their eyes were opened. They saw the one revealing himself as Lord of creation, by whom and for whom all things were created. Now the disciples saw they had mistaken Jesus' identity all along. For the first time, we see the disciples worship Jesus. And they cry out, Truly, you are the Son of God. As they began to see Jesus for who he really is, they understood that the suffering of the storm had a purpose to cause them to look to Jesus as their one hope in life and death. That is the purpose for your trials, your storms, your difficulties the storm-tossed waves of your life as well. They're designed to reveal that Jesus is walking with you through your troubled waters. We sang this earlier. I have a shelter in the storm when troubles pour upon me. Though fears are rising like a flood, my soul can rest securely. Oh, Jesus, I will hide in you my place of peace and solace. No trial is deeper than your love that comforts all my sorrows. Do you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the eternal words, these words that are life. Thank you for the reality you are with us. Open our eyes, Jesus. Pray for my, all my beloved brothers and sisters that's struggling. I pray for myself, Lord, as we go through trials. Jesus, may we see you even unexpectedly. 
in your glory, in your power, still the storms, comfort us, help us know your care, interpret our lives for us, Lord. Give us grace to trust you, to praise you, to worship you, even in the midst of those most difficult trials. We pray that all in Jesus' name.